This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dull. Every couple of weeks we get together to talk about current events informed by our shared Catholic faith. We're continuing our special episodes uh, on the LA Religious Education Congress, and we are so thrilled to have with us one of the uh, most beloved speakers, one of the most charismatic personalities, one of the most wonderful people, and incredibly very talented artists, Brother oh, Mickey McGrath. <laughs> <laughs> Brother Mickey, welcome. Oh, thank welcome. you. Delight to be here. So we've been we've been talking with folks about um, a number of things, including what their experience of LA Congress has been like. So you've been doing this for a while, right? I have. I think it's might be my twentieth one. I'm oh not my sure. gosh! Do you get any Somewhere kind of, around there? Do you get like a um, you know a special chair or a watch or anything? Well, you'd for think I would after all I've done for these people. <laughs> <laughs> but for our listeners, it just so happens we're, we're having a conversation with Jan, uh, the program director, right after Brother Mickey, so we'll let her know. <laughs> no, we're just kidding. Just kidding. So, um, well, that's one of the highlights of my year. I love isn't it wonderful? There's nothing like it in the whole country. Now, we were just chatting before before we kind of went on the air here that this is a weird medium for a visual artist such as yourself. And so, so we're going to be limited in some ways in talking about and, and sharing your work, although on our show notes we will we will publish a link to, uh, to your website okay. and how people can get uh, your books, particularly uh, from, from World Library Publications. And so one thing, he's here, um, in addition to giving some workshops, his, his latest book is titled A Holy Mosaic, Love, Diversity, and the Family, Inspiration from Pope Francis. And we have this here before us, and if you are a fan of Brother Mickey's work, you are going to love this. It's, it's all about Pope Francis. It's all inspired by his uh, expressions, his teaching, his homilies, and, and it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. What inspires you about Pope Francis? What led to this book? Uh, it's a very good question. I think he just speaks to what I always hoped my work was about. I think my first, my breakthrough art was uh, from the great late Franciscan uh, Sister Thea Bowman. I uh, right at the time of my father's dying days, I. I had never heard of the woman, but I read an interview that she, uh, it was her last interview ever in U.S. Catholic magazine. I was visiting him one day, and there he was in his hospital bed in our living room at home in Philly. And um, I picked up the magazine, and I was so stirred by her words. And she gave this interview when she was dying herself, and she said, I'm not dying, I'm going home. I want to use the language of my slave ancestors. And that just led me, a year later, I saw a video about her life, and I 
that inspired nine paintings in a style I'd never done before. I used to teach, and that was right at the point when the community said I could see if I could do art full-time, and then there she was. So I feel like... So that's... um, she has such Pope Francis spirit, and I think that to answer your initial question, I kind of go a little tangent, so <laughs> well, but um, it, it, she showed me the love of diversity, and the celebration of diversity, when that's why this book's so special to me, because that's certainly what Francis is all about, you know. Well, Brother Mickey, for those that may not be familiar with your background, uh, you are you're Could a member you live of a, under some rocks. Yeah. But, but <laughs> What's wrong with you if you're not familiar with this? But work? Can, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the community that you belong to and uh, and and your work? Sure. I um, I'm from Philadelphia, as I mentioned earlier. That's where I grew up, and I went to a high school called Father Judge, run by the Oblates of St. Francis de Sales. And that's where I met my community. The other Francis, as I always <laughs> like to say. I want to do something within one of these days. And the three Francises. I love it. And, um, in fact, I'm doing a retreat in Washington at the retreat center. They're called, called the three Francises um, in a couple months. But in any event, um, so my spirituality is Salesian. And what I love about the sales is, I, I think of him as the first psychologist. You know, he nobody understood the human heart and its motivations better than him. Just practical, down-to-earth spirituality that anybody can practice. You know, that was his whole thing. And so my art fits right into that. I did a book on his and his quotes and talk. He's a patron saint of writers, so there's uh, endless supply of quotes uh, from him. But his big things are, are the practicing the virtues of... Humility and patience, and you know, if you fail on Monday, you get up on Tuesday and start over again. And it's a, it's about the love and mercy of God, not the punishing, judgmental God that too many of us have. Well, the follow-on question that I have is, as you are preparing to do a work, how does prayer fit into your preparation to practice art? I, um, my morning meditations, more often than not, are, are drawings. I've, I'm really taken with the iPad. All the drawings in there were done on my iPad because it's convenient and I can travel with it. So that's... I, I was just sharing this recently in a talk. You know, I, I'm in the Oblates 42 years now. And when I was a novice, way back when, in 1976, we were had to be in that chapel for meditation, 6.30 in the morning, and God forbid you weren't there. But we were never taught how to meditate. It was kind of like... You're just sitting there, yeah. trying to figure it out yourself. Yeah, yeah. and um, and that's where I learned. I journaled a lot. That's where I, and also learned that this is my way to, to pray. So, the, the I don't go through any big rituals beforehand because the, the process, the journaling, the drawing itself is is the prayer. You know, is the prayer. If I can jump in here, I mean, I've had the privilege of knowing you, Mickey, for a while, and uh, you're one of my favorite people. And so I, I can say, because I've seen you in action, we were just talking before we went on the air here that uh, we were both at a conference in Reno, Nevada, their diocesan uh, conference, sort of a mini version of LA Congress a few months back. And uh, I just happened to bump into him at the airport as we were leaving the kind of day after the conference. And, and Brother Mickey had his iPad out, and you were just moved by the spirit by, by a passage of something you read. And then just started, uh, you know, illustrating, and it's it's just absolutely amazing. I didn't know the technology was was available for that, and to see you at work. I mean, for our listeners, it may just for a lot of them who think of, you know, somebody who works in visual art like you, they might think of like the watercolors or, or oils, or you know, sitting in a in a room where you have to have all your paint and the canvas and stuff. But but you've really embraced the the technology. How has that changed the way you think about oh my, your work? Yeah. Totally, and yet I. 
to me, it's uh, just another medium, you know. And when I I do I travel a lot, and um, on my trips that I run, uh, you know, art and faith tours, I call them. I use pen and ink, and so it's traditional. I don't I don't like to do that kind of sketching from life on the iPad too much. So it's just two different mediums. It's whatever is trying to come out of me. The the, the medium is appropriate. What I love about the iPad, is I I drew on the plane that five hour flight out here from Philly. The whole way, you know, and I just wow. kind of let sometimes the people next to me kind of, I can tell they're like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> what is this guy well, up yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, one time it was funny, I was drawing a poster for a play, a friend was uh, Night of the Iguana, Tennessee Williams thing, so I was working out the designs on the flight, I think it was coming home from the LA Congress section, and um, so I was doing iguanas and all, and the guy at the end of the trip, the guy across the aisle said, Excuse me, sir. He said, was that an iguana you were drawing? I said, yeah, I'm glad you recognize it. I don't know what they look like. I was just not using them. And I, I said, how did you? And he said, well, I teach marine biology. What are wow. the chances? <laughs> wow. And he's like, actually, you've got the spots wrong over here. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. like but so, Holy Spirit. That's amazing. Well, that's yeah. totally it. But it's it's what meditation is. You know, it's, it's like your Franciscan heritage. It's just being present. In nature, in creation, just being showing up, you know. Yeah. And then coming in and pray without words. So, what? Tell us a little bit about the workshops you're doing this year at LA Congress. Well, tomorrow morning I'm doing. It's called Silver-Haired Saints for the Golden Years, <laughs> and it's uh, when I turned 62 years ago is when I started developing it, and uh, I'm in that bracket now, you know. So. Um, it's just to look at the wisdom of the second half of life. There's so much Richard Rohr oh, inspiration yeah. in there. And, you know, and especially now in this day and age, I'm talking a lot about what we've done to religion, you know, and it's trying to get it healthy again, you know. Yeah. And that should be the process of the second half of life, you know. You just own so, who you are, you know. Absolutely. Do, do you... Is, when you lead workshops here at LA Congress and, and elsewhere, do, do folks who would come and, and participate or attend, do you share your own original art? you share reflections? I mean, what, what would somebody expect, you know, tomorrow morning yeah, in your presentation? Yeah, what they'll, what they'll get tomorrow. I'm, I've reached a point, and I guess I've been at this long enough, that my problem is cutting things down, you know, because I always say, oh, i got to show this one picture. i got to tell the story behind this <laughs> You've got like so, 80 slides. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm always going overtime anymore. But people don't seem to complain. But that, what they can expect is I will project the images that I've done uh, and, uh, and tell the stories behind them. Do you have a favorite color? <laughs> oh, that's a, <laughs> Funny that's a great question. I do. Yeah. What is your favorite color? <laughs> Are you going to psychoanalyze me? No, not at all. <laughs> Yellow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And orange. I kind of like orange. Okay. Orange is one of those colors that's... Uh, um, it's hard to pull it's off. It's hard to be neutral. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. true. Yeah. Um, you know, you either hate it or love it. It's my son's favorite color. Is it really? Yeah. Is Does he it, uh, demented? Uh, no, no, no. But, <laughs> but he, he's a big fan of orange. Uh, 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 yellow, I think he's still on the fence about yellow, but, yeah. but orange is definitely. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't he have orange eyeglasses or something? He's got he's got red eyeglasses. Oh, red right. is his other favorite yeah, color. So, yeah. But so. I, 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 it's not what I use a lot of. And, of course, you don't see a lot of orange. And, but... Uh, Green. I use a whole lot of green. I like green a lot. Of shape, shape yeah. green. It's very Franciscan. Yeah, and I do, I've done a lot in the past with favorite colors and what that tells you about you emotionally and spiritually. And, you know, okay. Different from the liturgical symbolism, uh, which is plays into it though. But uh, so, so tell know. us, tell us about orange and green. Orange. Yeah. Green's considered a mystical color, and it's it's created through blue and yellow. So mm -hmm. it's two primaries coming together and making this secondary color. But blue's the color of the sky, of meditation, of inner 
silence and uh, and yellow is of course so vibrant and extroverted so it's mixing introversion and extroversion oh, wow. and that's how you get green and then depending how if it's dark green or lime green or whatever olive green um, it's still green it still has the characteristics of greenness but just now I would imagine that, yellow is a is a vibrant color but red is also a vibrant color so when right. you get orange they're called warm colors yeah, yeah d- double extra, vibrance yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's like a little too much for some people. Uh-huh. I could paint this whole wall blue and just put one little orange dot and that's enough to balance it out. Oh, know, that's so say. interesting. Wow. Yeah. And blue and orange are what we call complementary colors or opposite on the wheel. And um, a friend of mine said to me once, who was a psychiatric nurse, and he said, you realize you used the same psychotic colors that my psychotic patients used? <laughs> oh, blue and orange? Which, which was Van Gogh's favorite. Oh, one. yeah. He had that whole blue yeah, period, right? Yeah, the sunflowers and the... Oh, yeah. yeah. That was Picasso with the blue period. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. See, I'm, yeah. I'm betraying my ignorance. Yeah, I should stick nice. to theology. I'll <laughs> <laughs> leave the art to, to Mickey. <laughs> so one of the things that we would love to ask everybody who's come through here is, do you have a favorite aspect or dimension of Congress um, or a favorite story that you'd like to share, you know, something that stays with you, when you think of the Los Angeles Religious Education Congress, what comes to mind? Um, I always describe it to people as the energy of the day. I just love it. It's my favorite church experience of church, and it's a broader experience than, you know, sitting in the pew at home. It's the diversity here, and the, it's exhausting as I get older, too. You know, it takes me longer to spring back to it when I get home again, but um, I, I think that's what I like, just this positive, loving energy, you know. That's fantastic. Well, Brother Mickey McGrath, we're so grateful that you took the time yeah, to be with yeah, us. Yeah, thank you. And, so and again, for our listeners, we'll make sure to have a link up to Brother Mickey's work, and you can check out his books um, and his prints. I hope you have a wonderful remainder of Congress. Well, you too. Thank you, Dan. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks we get together to look at current events and talk about them from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. We're continuing our special Los Angeles Religious Education Congress Bonanza episode. We are talking to speakers, to attendees, to artists, to composers, and we are so absolutely thrilled and honored to have with us Jan Pedroza, who is, and let me see if I can get the title right, because she wears many, many very important hats here in the Archdiocese and at, at Congress. She is the program coordinator for the Religious Education Congress and the Early Childhood Catechesis Director for the Office of Religious Education. Is that right? Kind of, sort of, Dan. Oh, please correct me. I'm the coordinator for Early Childhood Faith Formation. That's it. Don't say I'm the director. Father Chris will get upset. Oh, I'm sorry, (laughs) Father Chris. Oh, oh. Well... We are thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much. We've been talking to all sorts of folks about their experiences at LA Congress. We just spoke to Brother Mickey. He's talked about being here for decades now and all the high points, his favorite parts of being here. Can you, for our listeners, as somebody who is is the overseer, the kind of coordinator, the, the guru of the events that take place here, tell us a little bit, if somebody asks you, Jan, what is LA Congress? What do you say? How do you explain it? 
Well, I think LA Congress has grown to become something for everybody. That's what I say. Because it's no longer just for catechists. It's no longer just teaching faith formation and how to go out there and relate that to all the ministry that you're working with. But it's how are we touching other people's lives. And just by virtue of this exhibit hall, this podcast that you're doing today, we are reaching millions of people. You know, where, where, where it started 64 years ago, by the way, in a very small um, high school classroom, has grown now to this, you know, megaplex. And it's, of course, the largest Catholic congregation of catechetical ministers here in the United States. Well, one of the things that Dan did a little earlier today was he took me behind the scenes in the arena and he showed me all of the different feeds and all the different ways. You are literally broadcasting worship around the world, aren't you, from here? We're definitely broadcasting around the world. It's really, really fun. How does one keep one's serenity when you are looking at a project of this kind of scope and this kind of impact? Well, it seems like we used to actually have a month off before we got started again. And what was so funny is the other day I was walking with a friend and we passed by a speaker and I said, hey, we said hello and, you know, exchanged pleasantries. And I said, start thinking about 2020. And my friend said, why are you asking about 2020 already? I said, and he goes, don't you know? He goes, Jam wants the write-up in three weeks. We literally have to plan right when we get back. So we have an evaluation meeting within two weeks and it goes from there. We start planning everything from liturgies to speakers to exhibit hall planning to everything. So it, it just, it takes a village, really, to get this all um, put together. And while there are two main coordinators, myself and Paulette Smith, the whole Office of Religious Education is involved, and there are hundreds of volunteers that really give of their time and talent, and volunteers that have been doing this far longer than I've been the coordinator, which is almost 20 years. So it's just amazing the amount of people that will come together to do the will of God and for the people. So when we say cloud of witnesses, we're really talking about an unseen, invisible cloud of witnesses and volunteers and support staff to make something like this happen. Very much so. From the workshops where you have an MC, a chairperson, and assistants in every workshop, to the volunteers that help out in the volunteer lounge and serve hospitality, to the committees, all the committees, the three main committees of Congress, they're all volunteers. Nobody gets paid. Having been... Uh deeply humbled and privileged to preside and preach at three liturgies in the short period of time that I've been invited to be here, um, I know that the liturgy committees are, I mean, they're doing work that there's not enough money in the world to pay them for all the hard work that they're doing. It's so incredible that people give of themselves for this event and do so with such enthusiasm, so much excitement. You know, David and I were talking yesterday, last evening, because his first experience of a Congress liturgy was Friday night, 515, this one liturgy, the, the one that I was presiding and preaching at, and we were talking about the music, the, the Eucharistic ministers, the, you know, the, the servers, the, the lectors, the, the hospitality people. I mean, then you have the, the crews that are organizing everything. It's just so amazing. It's just, that's just one, for one event of thousands, really, isn't it? Yeah, and it's very true. Every liturgy, as you know, is going to have a lit- liturgy coordinator. But that person is going to coordinate with many people just to make sure that everything happens. And then there are two main liturgy coordinators for the weekend. One takes the Friday, one takes the Saturday to make sure everything goes off as planned. Now, do you have a favorite thing about Congress? Now, you're probably right You're in the midst of it right now, so maybe it's hard to think about that. But what's your favorite thing about it? 
Well, I know this is a podcast and you can't see it, but you can see it, Father Dan. I got this beautiful pin this morning from a woman who I helped yesterday in registration. She told me that she just could not pay the whole fee amount and that she always comes. And um, she just said, is there anything you can do for me? I'm begging of you. And she's just such an adorable person. And just the fact that she was so humble. And I said, of course, I can help you. We'll give you our reduced fee rate, no problem. And so then today she came back and gave me this beautiful pen. It was just, it's such small little gestures like that. She didn't need to do anything. Her smile and making her happy was all I needed. But those little happiness moments, you know, that you see really through the eyes of God. I mean, I don't think those would happen in a lot of conferences. I, you know, I'm sure they happen in everyday life. But that's grace, you know, right there. That's that's wonder. And for those who can't see the pin, it appears to me it's, it's Our Lady of Guadalupe. And so she, you have you have participated in the ministry of our Blessed Mother. You've helped to fill the hungry with good things. <laughs> Very much so. So, so you're planning for this year round, mm-hmm. and you have hundreds of volunteers, support staff, an entire office that's involved in this. Tell me about self care. <laughs> how is it? How is it that you are that, in the midst of, of this being a constant year round thing? How do you take time for prayer and time for care? That's a very good question. I think sometimes uh, we need to do more of that praying and caring. I will say that um, through our Office of Religious Education, through Sister Edith, who was our director for many years, and continuing now with Father Chris, you know, we make sure we have staff retreats. Um, He tries to make sure we are accommodated down here so that, you know, for instance, we all stay at, like, you know, one of the nearby hotels so that we're not traveling back and forth. There's lots of little things that they do for us. We have a wonderful dinner on Saturday night for all the committees and all the ORI staff and their spouses. Um, so there's little things along the way to keep us going. But, you know, when, when people ask you, why do you do ministry? I think that you just, you, you, you get thrown into it sometimes. That's how I felt I was years ago. But once you get into it and you love it, it's just really that wonderful feeling that money can't buy, car can't buy for you, you know, it's just it's just this wonderful feeling that you're serving other people. And I think that everybody on these committees and people involved in the Office of Religious Education staff, they are, they really um, have that love to serve other people. This, this whole thing that I'm looking at, this Congress, it's clear to me that this is one kind of edge of what we might call the new evangelism or the new evangelization. Um, and there must be there must be a very strong mission focus in the office. And so when you when you think about your mission, how do you articulate your mission in a, a couple of sentences? What are you trying to do here with the Congress in terms of, of evangelization and spreading the gospel? Well, that's a very good question. Of course, we do have an exact mission statement of which I cannot read to you right now because I have nothing in front of me. But I will tell you that I know it's definitely about reaching out to the peripheries, you know, that is something that we have to do. And we have every kind of walking periphery <laughs> here in Los Angeles, especially in our archdiocese. Of course, you know, one of the largest archdiocese in the United States. And there's just so many cultures that we reach to and so many languages that we need to speak to and so many people that need to hear our words. So that, to me, I think is our true evangelization. And that's really what RE Congress, which started out as a catechetical conference and still is, but to me, it's more and more of an evangelization, reaching out to people who need to hear the Word of God. 
The, the two things you just mentioned were both things I was thinking about. One is, is the diversity, and almost to a person, everyone we've spoken to so far this weekend has said that that's been one of the like things that strikes them. You know, Maybe it's the top three things that, that just blows them away about LA Congress every year, the Religious Education Congress. First of all, you have three official languages, right? We have English, Spanish, and Vietnamese, so that the, the theme is always conveyed. There's programming in these languages, the liturgies, um, the enculturation is just so, so striking. But then the fact that it started as a, as a formation program from catechists, it continues to be that, but it's also like open to anybody. So that you have people on the one hand, what strikes me as a presenter is that you're, you're helping to, God willing and the spirit active, inspire people or educate people who are going to go and educate and inspire other people in their ministries. But then also anyone who can get here can come too. you know, anybody who can, you know, you register. It's, it's a it's a it's not that expensive. I mean, it's it can be expensive for some folks to, to get here. And but to we be work here. with them and you work with them. Yeah. I mean, that's something really important to communicate. Um, well, another thing that's really important to communicate along those lines is that I often ask, well, you know, I'm not Catholic. And I say, you know what? You certainly don't need to be Catholic to come to con- Congress. You don't need to be a Christian necessarily to come to RE Congress because that's the beauty of the evangelization. We get you here, we evangelize you out. It's <laughs> so true. We'll walk you through the RCI process. But really, um, I really think RE Congress has something for everybody. So that's the way through the years that I've been involved, at least, that I've seen it grown from just you know working with catechists, which is still our main focus. Um, but we do liturgical ministers come here, um, liturgical movement, that's so important. Those ministers come here. There's workshops in those areas. We have workshops for LGBT uh, communities, um, for people who are suffering, for people who are joyful. We have we have something for everything, and that's why we just say, hey, come on out. And it's not a bill of goods. What Jan says is true. There really is something for everybody here. Maybe the last question to wrap up, we're so grateful for you taking the time. Maybe you can help kind of myth bust or demystify this question everybody has. How many people actually come here every year? (laughs) What's the official line? Every year it always changes. And of course, now we are live um, with registration. So we do not close registration until 9 a.m. tomorrow on Sunday. So technically the numbers can keep climbing. But right now, um, because we just ran numbers earlier and since registration is one of our responsibilities, um, we were close to 19,000 for the adult days. That's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we had close to 12,000 for youth day, which was Thursday. Wow. So do the math. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) Plus all the exhibitors who aren't registered, all the speakers, we had 194 speakers that came. And then some of the volunteers that aren't technically registered because they're doing so many things that they don't go to workshops. So we always have to add in probably about 1,500 volunteers. That is incredible. Well, Jan, it's been such a joy to have you with us. Thank you for everything you and your colleagues do to make the Religious Education Congress possible. It is uh, a highlight of of my life and my year, and I am thrilled. It's a vocational booster shot for me, and uh, and I have you to thank for that, and so does everybody else here, even if they don't know it. (laughs) So thank you for taking time on your very busy schedule. Thank you so much, Father Dan and David. You've been listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, I'm here with my friend Dan Horan, and we're here with friend of Frank, Mary Switalski, here at the LA Religious Education Congress here in Anaheim. You drove several hours to be here from the San Joaquin Valley, is that correct? 
Yes. Yes, and so um, tell us about why it is that you come to this Congress. I come because I'm excited to hear um, different Catholic speakers and to learn new things. Um, that's how I first learned about Father Dan, and you just blew my mind. <laughs> and I was like, wow, who is this person? And I want to hear more about what he has to say. Yeah, it just opened, opened me up to new and incredible ways of thinking. So. Now, how many of these have you been to? Is this your second, your third, your fifth? Third. Third, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's my first. I'm a little overwhelmed because there's a lot of Catholics here. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think tomorrow will be even worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all the other, all the non-hardcore people are at work. See, I took the day off because I'm right. hardcore. <laughs> so if you had to give advice to somebody who's never come to L.A. Congress, but you wanted to kind of convey to them, this is why you should come. What would you say to them? Why should they come here? Some people travel from like Australia and Guam. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy, but I can see why because it's like, it's the who's who's of the Catholic. It's like uh, the Catholic world. You get to hear all the great speakers and you get to meet all the writers. It's it's like a, it's well, I know you've said it. It's like the Oscars of the Catholic world. <laughs> and it's, you learn new things and meet new people and you have a great great time like i just went to a class on um like ivf and i didn't really understand all that and what what the church is teaching on it is and now i understand more and it and was so cool. for, for our listeners ivf is in vitro fertilization so it's artificial fertilization and those kinds of things so if i'm hearing you correctly you didn't know all of the why the church opposed that and now you have a better idea of why the church opposes that from a doctrinal standpoint or from some other standpoint yes okay i had a pretty good idea but no one had really told me and i broken know. it down yeah 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 so uh you know, excluding me, of course, because you've already embarrassed me. Very, I'm, I, listeners can't see I'm bright red because you're saying so many kind things about me. Um, what it, you've been here three years, and you know, what are your favorite workshops? Do you have like, you know, what's the best of? What was your favorite? Mm, okay, okay, excluding you. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, I like to watch Father Tony. He is. Oh, Father he, Tony Ricard. Yeah, yeah, he's a lot of fun, and I, I really like his message there was a sister that i saw last year and she blew my mind about um women in the bible was it, it was it sister uh, barbara reed was that the name mm, she was at one of the hotels I, I can't but i rushed over to try to buy her buy her book and it was all gone and now i can't remember her name so there goes my opportunity to get her book but um she was fantastic and um a lot of people gave her a lot of pushback um and she handled it very well, and, and it just made me admire her even more. It was great. It's, I mean, <laughs> just the examples you've given show, you know, I think for our listeners that there's so many different options. You've got moral theology, you've got spirituality, you've got scripture, you've got doctrine, you've got music, you've got liturgy, you've got, I mean, anything that you're interested in related to faith or to the church or to theology or spirituality, LA Congress is the place to be. Totally. Yeah. Word. Well, Mary, so so great to have you join us. Um, you know, from uh, it's always nice to to see fans in real life, and uh, you know, I'm real. she's real. <laughs> Keep up all the good work, and always a pleasure to see you. Thank you, Father Dan. You've been listening to the Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you uh, perspectives and issues informed through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. We're here at the LA Religious Education Congress and we've been talking to participants and speakers and any number of, uh, of wonderful guests. And today we're talking with Nick Wagner. And Dan knows what Nick does and I've just been introduced to him so he's going to tell us what Nick does. <laughs> Nick is a uh, polymath we can say. He is... He is behind the scenes, as I know, uh, with GIA Publications, right, the GIA Quarterly. He's a, uh, an editor. You've been the editor of numerous publications. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Um, most recently, he and, and his lovely wife, Diana, are the co-coordinators and founders of Team RCIA. Uh, our listeners may have heard of that, maybe using these resources in their own ministry. It's a, well, tell us about it. Nick, first of all, welcome. And what is Team Thank RCIA? <laughs> well, Team RCIA is a, it's a free online resource for parishes that want to make Christians for life. Uh, so my wife, Diana McAlintel, and I, um, in the early 2000s, we saw, uh, we saw that, te- that RCI teams in parishes were feeling a little bit, what, isolated or, or under-resourced. A lot of times folks get asked to volunteer for this important ministry, and they don't get all the support and training that they need. And, and at that same time, we were noticing kind of the explosion in the early 2000s of, of um, how, how corporate businesses, secular businesses were using the internet and social media to connect with the people that they serve. And we thought, hey, maybe we could try to, try to uh, understand what they're doing a little bit and adapt that and apply that to, uh, to parish ministry, especially for catechumenate teams. So in 2007, we started a blog and, uh, and just began providing resources. And that, that grew and grew and grew until today we've got about 20,000 uh, members, 20,000 subscribers all across uh, the United States and Canada and Australia, pretty much the whole English-speaking world, uh, people who, who, want to, who want to bring folks into the church and give them a, a sense of conversion and understanding who Jesus is. You mentioned a moment ago a whole life focus. I think maybe some people have an understanding of RCIA that it lasts for a season and then it's over. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the change in mindset from a, a one-and-done RCIA to a whole life focus kind of RCIA. Yeah, that's a great question because there's kind of a myth out there that folks go through the RCIA and then they quit and they fall off. And that's there's really nothing to support that. In fact, uh, uh, you have to help me remember what the initials stand for, but CARA, the Center for Apostolic... Uh, oh, uh, it's the Center, Center for, for the Applied Research, Research in the, the Apostolate. Apostolate. Yeah. At Georgetown, uh, yeah. They, they, uh, they, they did some really digging into the numbers, and their estimate is that 84% of the people who go through a catechumenate process in the parishes are still active Catholics today, and that, that compares with about 64% of cradle Catholics who are still active Catholics. So it's, it's an amazing process. So as you said, it does convert people for life. It makes them missionary disciples of Jesus. They have a passion for uh, the Catholic faith and being active in their Catholic parishes. And the, the whole point of that is to is to convert people's hearts to do the work that Christ left us to do. It's As you know, it's not just a, an isolated few people with master's degrees or who get ordained or get uh, uh, parish positions that do this. It's the whole church that's called to evangelize. 
So just, I'm realizing too, we're talking a little bit inside baseball here. We jumped right into the Team RCIA, talking about RCIA. For some of our listeners, they may not be familiar with what this acronym stands yeah, for. Yeah. And it's the, it's, it means Roman Catholic Intelligence Agency. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's right. It's, it's the conspiracy theorist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is it really? It is. Uh, the, official, the official title is Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults. It's a rite of the church, a sacrament of the church, uh, like the uh, Order of Christian Funerals or the Order of Matrimony. It's a, it's an official rite of the church. The roots of it date back to the third and fourth centuries in the ancient catechumenate. At the Second Vatican Council, the, the bishops called for a restoration of the catechumenate, and the rite of Christian initiation of adults is the answer to their mandate to restore the catechumenate. Yeah, and just a, a little bit further background, like prior to the council, as you're saying, Nick, you know, the way people kind of quote-unquote converted, and that's not even the best way to talk about it, but maybe they were baptized in another Christian tradition or wanted to enter into full communion with the Roman Catholic Church, it was kind of an ad hoc thing, right? You'd meet yeah. with a priest for a couple lessons, maybe, you know, a few weeks here, a few weeks there. There wasn't a real formal process. Yeah. And then, well, you know, someday the pastor goes, well, I think you're ready. Let's baptize you. Let's confirm you or something. Yeah, a huge shift with the right of Christian initiation of adults. In the introduction to the right, it says that the responsibility for initiating uh, new members into the faith, that responsibility belongs to the Christian faithful. So primarily it's the job of all of our parishioners to be doing this work of initiation. So what's really inspired me about the work that, that you and Diana have been doing is, you know, you've had this online resource that has just blossomed. It's international. Um, but you've been moving now into some more traditional kind of media as well and partnered with Liturgical Press. Tell us about the Team RCIA uh, uh, printed resource resources that are available. Yeah, Liturgical Press has been a great support to us. Both Diana and I have master's degrees from uh, St. John's University in Collegeville, which uh, Liturgical Press is part of. Uh, the, 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 uh, the theology program at uh, St. John's and the liturgical press, as you know, were both founded by Virgil Michael, who was a, a pioneer in the liturgical movement. Uh, so we've always felt a close affinity with the work that liturgical press does. And about uh, four or five years ago, uh, we entered into a partnership with them to provide printed resources, uh, books and, and pamphlets and booklets that will do the mission of Team RCI and the mission of Liturgical Press. And they have a, uh, if you're here at Congress, they have a lovely display over there, some of our latest resources. We now have, um, I think it's five books with them and with the Team RCI imprint. Well, and I think at least two of them are authored by yourself or co-authored yeah. the two of you, right? Yeah, I wrote two, Diana wrote one, and then uh, Lisa Anslinger wrote one for us, and... Uh, uh, Dr. Tim O'Malley. Yeah, Tim O'Malley, yeah. that's who wrote it. Yeah, yeah. And it's excellent. It's on the, the liturgical process that happens in the right, and he's just fabulous. Well, let me ask you this. Um, so for our listeners, we'll make sure to have in the show notes a link to the Team RCIA website as well as to the Lit Press resources. And, and in addition to being a great supporter of Team RCIA, uh, they're a great supporter of this podcast. They're actually one of our sponsors. So so cheers to Liturgical cheers to Press. Lit Press yeah. um, but let's switch gears for a moment. I, I'm curious to hear, because we've been asking all the folks we've talked with, about your experiences of L.A. Congress. You've been here for a while. You've been coming for a while. You've been a part of it. You know, how long have you been coming? Is this? Oh gosh, well, uh, I, yeah, I, I don't think I'd even know for sure. I think since the since the early 2000s, at least. Yeah. Okay. What is your favorite part of Congress? Uh, my favorite part is just walking around and seeing all the people. I, I heard you ask Jan how many how many folks are here. I, I didn't hear her answer, but it's it's in the you know tens of thousands. I know. And, and to, um, to just see this many folks so passionate about their faith all in one place at one time 
is the biggest uplift for me. I, I just go home energized. Because when you're, when you're at home and you're kind of by yourself, uh, you can get a sense that things are not going so well and you feel a little down, a little depressed, but you can't feel depressed being here. This is just such, such an awesome experience. And so, you know, one of the things that is part of the Congress is that there's a, a real youth component that happens. Talk to us about, for those that are unfamiliar with RCIA, some people might confuse it with kind of a youth group or something like that. It's, it's not for the youth, it's for people who have been adults, but what what sort of resources can we think about in terms of catechesis for young people as well? Well, RCI for, for young people who are who are uh, being evangelized, who are coming into the faith, the RCI is for them. So the the right says that any person who has reached the age of reason, and by that they mean people who can understand a little bit about what it is to forgive, what it is to live a life of sacrifice, what it is to love each other intentionally, what it is to to share our resources with those who don't have enough, and even some very young children can understand those kinds of concepts. So for those uh, for those people who are uh, just coming to awareness of that and are seeking baptism or reception in the full communion, uh, the RCIA is a process that we can use for them. For folks who are already in our parishes, already baptized, or or uh, Christians coming from other traditions who are well evangelized and catechized, the RCI is not really for them, but we can use the principles and the processes of the RCI and adapt those. Uh, so basically, what the, the good news about the RCI is it's not a it's not a lecture kind of process where you go through a textbook and you get to the end of the textbook and you graduate into Jesus. It's it's a conversion process, right? So even those of us who are baptized and kind of live in our faith are always going deeper into conversion. So we can use the principles of the RCI to bring young people uh, to a to a kind of a mystagogical process where they, they um, reflect more deeply on their experience of Christ, both in their uh, liturgical prayer, in the domestic church, in their home life, with their peers and their youth activities. A any place that they experience Christ is an opportunity for catechesis. That's so beautiful. This concept of ongoing conversion, I've been thinking more and more about the importance of that. I think that a lot of people, particularly our Protestant friends, sometimes they get a sense of a, it's a numbers game. If you can just say the Jesus prayer yeah. and, and, and you've, you've confessed your sins, then that's it, and then they move on to the next convert. But it really is a going deeper, a going deeper, a going deeper. I love the approach that you're taking with this. Yeah. The word that Pope Francis uses, as you know, is accompaniment. So in an accompaniment process, you're not, you're not counting numbers and you're not counting a certain goal or a certain date by which you're going to get to the end of the journey. It's just an, an ongoing accompanying of where the person is in their life. And Pope Francis says it's not just accompaniment for the sake of walking along with somebody. It's accompaniment with the goal of bringing them into union with the Father. And so, uh, so if we always sort of have that attitude about that, no matter what the age of the person we're with or what their level of conversion is or how well they're living the faith or not living the faith, we're, we're always just walking with them where they are in their journey right now. Well, Nick, it's been so great to speak with you to tell us a little bit about Team RCIA and your experience of LA Congress. Um, it's a joy. Thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in a moment. So, David, 
<laughs> we are no longer in the Magic Kingdom, known as Anaheim. I mean, Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. We're in a Magic Kingdom of a different sort here in Hyde Park in my studios. That's true. We are here, back in Chicago, and we've been going through L.A. Congress withdrawals. Well, uh, yeah, I, in some ways. I mean... Let's face it. There's a reason why people move to that part of California. I mean, the the weather was it's amazing. It's the beautiful traffic. It the was. <laughs> it's it's easy to get around. The commute is brief. No smog. Plenty of water. Oh. And a diverse landscape. That's what I think of when I think of Southern California. Well, it's I, also warm. That's yeah. about. It. I but I will just say that the LA wreck was amazing, and it has changed in some fundamental ways the way that I think about Catholicism. And in the last two weeks that we've been back, that's been having ripple effects in my life. And I would I would be interested in diving into a little bit I about I want to hear all about that. Yeah. But, but before we get yeah. there, because that's sort of the, uh, you know, meanwhile or that sort of thing, I want to play if we're doing a TV show sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know, last time on L.A. Rec <laughs> with David Dalt. Give us a, a lowdown. So the last time our listeners heard us have a conversation, you had just arrived. I was two hours in and had only been had only seen the uh, the swag room or the the big kind of <laughs> the exhibit hall. The exhibit hall, and and of that, I had only seen a small corner of it because this this place was huge. I mean, a conference center is is literally like if you think about a, a school gymnasium. Imagine fifteen or twenty of those ganged together with no columns or anything else, just big open space, and every conceivable inch of it filled with just tables, and those tables are laden with either books or videos and DVDs or tchotchkes. In this particular case, it was like you could get statues of Mary, you could get all manner of candles, you could get you could get essential healing oils there. It was amazing. You can get vestments, you could get liturgical music, CDs, artwork. Yeah. Um, I think the publishers generally have the biggest presence. So, you, you know, you're there, you can see the books, books in Mostly in English, but also in Spanish, Vietnamese, etc. So, so give us the rundown. So, what else happened that weekend for you? What did you see? What did you do? So, part of it was simply, and I began to talk about this when we were last talking, was the scale of it, and the you know, I'm I grew up in the South where Catholicism is a severe minority, and then moving to Chicago, which is a very Catholic town, and seeing the diversity of Catholicism in Chicago. The visible diversity of Chicago Chicago Catholicism is mostly Anglo-style Catholicism. So it's English-speaking Catholicism or Irish Catholicism or Polish Catholicism. But, you know, because I, I have hung out at Catholic Theological Union, because I'm in a very diverse parish, I'm also aware of Vietnamese Catholicism and Filipino Catholicism and, and, and sort of, uh, if you will, brown Catholicism. But being at L.A. Rec., it was very clear to me just how brown Catholicism is in America. And that was eye-opening. I really liked that. And um, it, it, has, it has really got me thinking about my experience of Catholicism and, and how my children have been exposed to the faith. And it's got me thinking about how I want to change that moving forward. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exciting. Um, so, so did you? Uh, well, so our listeners at this point have heard many of our conversations yeah. with with friends and new friends and old friends alike. Um, apart from that, that's basically where we overlapped with uh, with a lunch in between, and then we reconvened at the very, very end before going our separate. Well, 
well, we'll tell our listeners in a minute, almost going our separate <laughs> ways. There's a funny coda to this whole experience. Um, but uh, at, at the closing liturgy, or at least the morning version of the closing liturgy. Yeah. Um, so what what happened in between? Where were you, man? What did you do? So part of it was just getting a sense of this thing. So I, I have been to many, many academic conferences. I have a reflex that kicks in when I go to a conference. I kind of start crashing things. Um, and this is from a long time ago a friend of mine, Alec Badnock, and I used to sort of flex our muscles when we were undergraduates. Every major had a wine and cheese, and when we were seniors, we decided that we were going to crash every wine and cheese, pretend that we were freshmen who were interested in possibly uh, majoring in whatever <laughs> major it was, and scarf scarf down a bunch of cheese and drink some wine and then, like, take naps outside. And that was largely what we did through our senior year. Every time that we heard about a wine and cheese, we crashed the wine and cheese. Well, that reflex of, like, just being able to come into a social space and pretend like you belong there has served me well on the conference circuit. And so a lot of the networking that I do is simply kind of crashing things and going to places that I'm not supposed to go and just showing up and starting conversations with people. And I'm a, I'm a severe introvert, but if there are things... But thi- you play an extrovert on TV. I do play an extrovert, and I do recognize the necessity of needing to talk to people. And so uh, I, I was going around the conference literally starting up conversations with people, and I had... Francis effect cards and things not seen cards uh, that at one point I was putting out uh, to kind of advertise the show. Then I got the memo from my friend Dan here that that's actually not allowed at the LA rec. And so I spent part of my time going around and clearing up all of the postcards that I had put out in the various strategic places. And in the midst of those cleaning ups, I actually struck up conversations with people. Oh, what are you taking away? Oh, I'm sorry to be interrupting you. Uh, You're having a conversation. I just need to get these cards because I want to be a good neighbor. Oh, what are the cards? And so, you know, I just, I found opportunities to tell people. It worked out. Yeah, Yeah, it did. Holy Spirit. Um, But also, um, the thing that amazed me was I would be walking through the, the exhibit hall, and on more than one occasion, a person called out my name. And I turned around, and it was a fan of the show. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my favorite parts of this weekend and, and talking to David is that— That, that blew my mind! <laughs> David showed up, and he's he's recognized you're no longer anonymous. You know, yeah. welcome to Catholic uh, minor celebrityhood. <laughs> it was wonderful, and the graciousness of what was said to me about how people are engaging with the show, not just the ideas, but our personalities, and uh, I just—I felt very welcomed. And I felt very, uh, I felt very affirmed in what we've been doing, and it it feels like we're kind of filling a niche that is a good niche, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for the people that stopped to to talk. I was also fascinated by the protests. I'll say that not oh, protests yeah. of our show, but on one end of the campus where we were, there were evangelicals with bullhorns who were telling us that we shouldn't be worshiping Mary and all of that. I mean, the 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 stuff that you'd expect. On the other side of the campus, much more quietly, were the trad Catholics who were angry that we were not worshiping Mary enough and worshiping the saints enough, and so and were probably sad that we were speaking English and not Latin. Um, and so, but there were others too. I oh, mean, I didn't know about the others. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's being out in that square. I mean, there's too much to take in, as you say. You know, we're talking about twenty, thirty thousand people. Um, you, you know, so the two kind of extremes that you've mentioned, they're they're regulars there. Uh, the ones of the bullhorns are kind of the Westboro Baptist style folk, and and they tend to be very very aggressive and and pretty disrespectful. Another very disrespectful group is um, these groups that are that are deeply homophobic and anti LGBTQ persons, and and very upset about the fact that 
You know, there are speakers that um, the Archdiocese of L.A. bring in who talk about the reality of gay and lesbian men and women and that there are Catholic LGBTQ folk and, and this kind of stuff in ministry. And, and they get really, really worked up. And so they, on the one hand, I don't want to give them any credit, but, but they go to great extremes to come up with artwork and banners and posters and um, just really, really grotesque stuff. And they go after a lot of people, including friends of mine. I'm happy to see on at least one of the more creative banners. I was not included. So that's, that's always a positive sign. Um, but it's, it's, it's deeply, uh, deeply upsetting. On the other hand, there's, there's another respectful kind of, you know, protest is, is in, in a broad sense, you know, they're, they're there making statements and this is the women's ordination conference. Group. Oh, okay. So, so you might've seen, you know, uh, women in Roman collars or with stoles on and, and, uh, they're kind of calling for the ordination of, of women as well. So, so, I mean, there really are everybody, every kind of group you can think of find some issue with the LA religious ed Congress, which in my opinion means they're doing something right. Yeah. I, I didn't see any women in collars. I'll look more closely the next time that I go. But I did see at least one sign that said women priests are here. And now that you mentioned that, that that at least was visible to me. Interesting. Um, and so remind me how many of these you've been to. I think this was my fifth, my fifth okay. or sixth. Okay. Yeah. And so was there anything that stood out to you as different or was this just part of the rhythm? So um, it was very much part of the rhythm. Uh, this is the third time that I had a liturgy. It's the fifth or sixth time that I've had two workshops. Last year was was a little bit much because I had a liturgy. They invited me to come and speak uh, on Thursday, which is the young adult, the young adult day, and that's two more workshops. So I had four workshops and a liturgy, um, and and that was that was pretty intense. I mean, it's a it's a high honor. It's a real great privilege to be able to 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 do all those things. But it's exhausting at the same time. Um, so in many ways, you know, I'm, I'm kind of acclimated now to to the L.A. Congress, you know, kind of rhythm and experience and what to expect. And and there are many ways in which it, it's still always new. Um, for me, the thing I look forward to most at this point is is reconnecting with friends. And, and some of those friends we had on the podcast and so listeners have already heard, you know, the reconnections, even if they didn't know the, the personal connections there. Um, but then there are lots of others, too. And so, you know, having dinner with folks, you know, catching up with folks, you know, bumping into people um, at the exhibit hall, you know, bumping into your publishers or editors, connecting in that way um, becomes, you know, a big part, something to look forward to. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. One of the things that was most exciting for me about this year's LA Congress was being there with you. Yeah, because, I had a because, lot of fun. Yeah, well, and part of it is, you know, it's like when you have, and, and, and listeners I'm sure can relate to this. I know you can relate to this. When you have, let's say, family or friends visit you, let's say here in Chicago, there are things we just take for granted. You know, we're not going to all the museums all the time. We're not going to all the tourist sites or these sorts of things or this restaurant or that restaurant. But people come into town and you got to put on your, your, you know, entertainment director cap and you're showing people around and all of a sudden – you realize, oh, this place is awesome. This place, you see it through somebody else's eyes, right? Through somebody else's experience. And so the whole time, I, even when we weren't actually communicating about, you know, what was going on or what you were doing necessarily, I was always thinking, I'm like, oh, I wonder what David thinks about this experience. And, and so, so you went to at least two liturgies. I mean, do you have, you know, we had talked a little bit offline about some of the things, you know, the, the, the music, the liturgical movement, all this kind of stuff. Like, what were your takeaways around, around that kind of experience, too? So what's interesting to me is, one, um, I, I attend a, a parish that is fairly large here on the south side of Chicago, uh, St. Thomas the Apostle. And I'm used to times when that, uh, when that sanctuary is full. 
that is nothing compared to sitting in a stadium <laughs> with 7,000-plus Catholics uh, and realizing that there is going to be uh, a full worship with Mass and all that. And so so going to your Mass on Friday night was powerful for me because, in part, it was you. Uh, and and being able to watch you in that in that register, because I know you in many other registers, the academic one uh, and the and the podcast one, but actually getting to see you be a priest was a real privilege for me. And uh, and and I always love worship, but especially getting the chance to worship with you, led by you, that was a treat for me. And I, I look forward to getting a chance to do that again. But also seeing people react to you as a religious leader was powerful for me because um, I think a lot about the the imposition of holy orders. And I, I use that, that, uh, that wording specifically because what I was thinking about was I, was I was imagining it as an introvert and having to be responsible for a liturgy of that size. Um, even though you're simply walking around, you're speaking, and you're, and you're consecrating the elements, I say simply, I would find that exhausting. And so I'm interested in, in talking to you more about what the experience is for you of being in that space and whether you find it energizing or, or if you find it in some ways that it taps your batteries in a way that nothing else does because you're a long-distance runner. I mean, you, you're used to stamina and, and having to draw from depths of energy, but I could see as an introvert sitting in that room how it could be something that would be um, draining in a way that maybe nothing else is draining. And I don't mean that badly. I just no, mean, no. yeah. No, no, I think you're, you're, you're exactly right. You're onto something. I mean, it is. It certainly is. Um, you know, I was talking with, with one of my colleagues from CTU, one of the admissions directors who was staffing, um, one of, you know, the CTU uh, booth at, at, in the exhibit hall. Yeah, where we recorded on that second day. And thanks to them again for letting us have that space to record in. Thank you, Catholic yeah. Theological Union. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Um, and, and we were talking after she had come back, too. So this is about a week ago, a week ago or so. And, you know, she was saying that basically being on that floor, meeting so many people, or just the energy around the exhibit hall and of, of the event itself, LA Congress was so exhausting that she was in bed like before nine o'clock every night. And, and that's something I can, I can relate to. I mean, we, we saw each other, um, you know, uh, at the CTU, uh, reception, which was after the liturgy in another venue. And so, so we bumped into each other and, and, um, our friend, Father Brian Massingale, who was on the last episode, he also had a liturgy on Friday evening. So both of us had liturgies at the same time. And one thing we kind of all commiserated was like, we were zombies at that point, just yeah. so exhausted, but in, in the best way possible. And then you and I had planned to get together on Saturday night for some after party stuff. And then you texted me at one point and were like, just can't do it. And, yeah. and I completely understood. I'm like, I get it. And I was actually thankful because that gave me a chance to go home and get some extra rest as well. <laughs> so you know what it's like. Yeah. I do. Well, and but I mean, I think that you tend to be a little bit more extroverted. I'm I'm an intense introvert, and so I realize that that people process emotional energy differently. And sometimes people get charged up by social activity. I do not. Um, but you also asked about the second uh, the second liturgy. Yeah. And yeah. so Sunday morning at eight there was this 7,000-seat uh, auditorium, or it's more than 7,000 seats, but there were about 7,000 people in there. And so Dan and I got a chance to sit together, and um, what, I'm, what I was aware of was how much I needed to see a good liturgy, how much I needed to see, because I love the parish that I go to, but 
it's not a high church, <laughs> you know, uh, and and a lot of a lot of the uh, the masses are kind of workaday masses. But it, it was interesting to me that as soon as the opening, the sort of prelude was beginning, I was in tears. I was weeping. He and was, I, <laughs> and it was a little embarrassing. But it's, no I, need to be embarrassed. I've been there. Yeah, it's it's it, for me getting a chance to connect to the faith, and in particular to the universality of faith, and to realize that this is not just something for me or for my locality, but it's something that is truly global. And seeing the globalness reflected there and the wide variety that God has chosen to create in the world reflected even in, the, in those opening moments of the liturgy was profound for me. And I, I really am enjoying and am benefiting from the the increased awareness of global Catholicism in the wake of L.A. Rec. It's, it's been a very powerful thing for me the past couple of weeks. And, it, and as I said earlier in the conversation, it's really changing the way that I think about church and church spaces. And it's changing the way that I want to interact in those church spaces. When I think, too, about, about that liturgy on Sunday morning or, I mean, it's, a, it's an even sort of bigger liturgy, if that's possible, in the, in the afternoon on Sundays. That's the, the kind of real closing of, of the liturgy. Uh, or of, of the Congress, rather. Um, and the, the 8 o'clock one is there precisely for the purpose that we were there for, which is for those who aren't able to stay. Got to get on end. a plane. <laughs> you got to get on a plane, and so you got to get mass. Get to mass. One of the things that always strikes me that's so refreshing, so uplifting, is, is not only, as, as you said, you know, kind of seeing everything unfold or hearing things unfold, because there's, there's one sense in which every single person who's involved there is the best in their field. It's organized by the best liturgists. Um, there are the best servers, altar servers, you know, people who are, you know, these are the coordinators. Every Eucharistic minister is like the coordinator of liturgical ministry at a parish somewhere in the archdiocese. Like these people know what they're doing. So when there's, you know, ministers of liturgical movement, these aren't just your volunteers who come along. And I mean, these are people people who are professionals. Um, and, you know, the, the musicians are the composers themselves. You know, it's just so amazing. But what to me is striking about LA Congress is that if you were to take any of those kind of professionals, especially the musicians and so forth, and plop them into your neighborhood parish like St. Thomas for us here in Hyde Park, I think what you would have is kind of a concert. You know, people would sort of slip into passivity and just be like awed by it. But that's not what happens at Congress. I mean, you know, from the beginning, you have the prelude, which is a little bit more performative, but it sets the tone. And then as soon as the opening hymn begins in this massive, massive procession of, of hundreds of, of ministers, of, of deacons and their wives and priests and, and bishops and so forth, everybody's standing and everybody's singing. It's 7,000 people singing on the top, you know, belting out the hymn and, and you're just swept up in it. I, another thing too, that really struck me, I got, I was just thinking about it as, as we were talking and I got like, you know, chills down my back remembering that, you know, that because of this liturgy, the way that it falls in the calendar this year, Congress was, uh, was in Lent and often is, but you had, you know, the dismissal of the catechumens and candidates. That was so, I loved that moment. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's chilling. It's chilling because you had – what they do is – and there will be more in the afternoon. There, there were a few, maybe a dozen or two um, in the morning liturgy. Um, and in the afternoon, it's, it's, it's dozens and dozens and dozens. Um, and, you know, in the parish, this happens too. After the homily, you have the sending forth of those who are preparing for full communion in the church. Um, but there's something about 7,000 people joining in the blessing of the dismissal, 7,000 people who sing – 
this kind of refrain about baptism as the bishop is praying over them and laying on hands. And then when they're sent forth, there's this, it always happens. There's this spontaneous eruption of applause and a standing ovation and this like cheering of, of the whole body of Christ as these people are moving, led by their, their sponsors, right? Their godparents move through the congregation to the back. I mean, you're, they're envel- literally enveloped because they're in all directions surrounded by people standing and, and applauding. It's, 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 it's overwhelming, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, just, it's a welcome to the family. And just imagine what it's going to be like when you're finally here. And I, I, I was so moved by that, too. I think I turned to you at one point and said, this is my favorite part. Yeah. 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 Incredible. And so the other thing that I was aware of is that, you know, we, we got there and there had already been a day or a day and a half of youth conference yeah. that had happened before. And that's another takeaway from this is that as my children get older, I want to find a way to have the family come out there with me to LA Rec and have them experience that that youth conference. That to to have them see Catholicism in that way, I think would be a powerful thing as well. And they have about fifteen thousand young people, mostly high school students, I think, and sometimes college students. Um, but it's, uh, it's parish youth groups. Um, the, I believe the Archdiocese of LA's um, Catholic school system has, has a, a universal day off that day. And so you have busloads and busloads of, of Catholic teens that come. And, um, you know, like I said last year, I had the opportunity to speak to, to those groups. And uh, the energy is just intense. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a summer camp, basically. And so every school has, you know, or every group has their matching T-shirts and, and they've got their cheers and everybody's, you know, it's not my typical ministry. And there's some people who do just tremendous work in that area um, who, who, who love it and are so good at it. Um, I, was, I was definitely not in my element, but the, but the students and, and the folks were just wonderful nonetheless. Um, but that's another 15,000 people. Yeah. And so when you think about over the weekend, you're talking. You're pushing 40,000 people altogether. It's really extraordinary. So, yeah, I, I look forward to that as well. I mean, so you kind of beat me to the punch, and, and I know we're on a limited amount of time, so we've probably got to wrap up. But my question to you and our listeners are probably wondering, will you come back? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've been pretty clear about crowds, and I will say that, that there were points in the exhibit hall where I found the amount of people to be stifling. That is the only negative that I had from that experience. And I'm old enough that I know how to handle that. So I've got earplugs and I know where the escape routes are and all that. So besides that, and I I hadn't anticipated, because I've been to conferences before, I hadn't anticipated that aspect of it because I'm used to crowds. But I was amazed at how big the crowds get in that huge exhibit hall. And the energy of it, too. Yeah. It's very very intense. I will say, because I don't want to scare our listeners either, but but David is right. I mean, even if somebody you know, doesn't find themselves, you know, experiencing post-traumatic stress or the anxiety of that sort, you know, where, where certainly that will be heightened. Um, and, and David, you could speak as well to the fact that there are downtimes too. It's a matter oh, yeah. of knowing, you know, maybe the best time to go to the exhibit hall is, is when the workshops are going on or you pick a time where you know it's going to be a lower oh, attendance. Yeah. There's ebb and flow. And so I, I, I very quickly realized that those rhythms were there. And so I just availed myself of the, of the downtimes. So that's, it's, it's manageable once you kind of get the the rhythm of the place. Yeah. But but I, I mean I'm curious actually, you know, I don't mean to pose a leading question. What what's your take of, you know, because because you're very aware and very attuned to crowd dynamics and and energy levels and and that sort of thing. What's your sense of how 
the crowds are managed. I mean, do you, is it, how organized is it from your vantage point? I mean, I have certain thoughts about this, but I have a couple of years of, of experience. I mean, bracketing, of course, with, with all things considered, the, the anxiety that comes with the, the peak times and the, and the big crowds. Um, did you ever find that it was, yeah, what's your sense of that? So I've gone to a lot of conferences over the course of 20 years, and one of the things that really stood out to me was how well-staffed and thoroughly staffed this was. So not just at the exhibit hall, but at various points around the conference site, there was uh, cordons of assistance people. And I, I felt like if you were differently abled, there was a lot of accommodation. I felt like if you were, if you didn't know where you were going, there were easy access points to information. I even found it easy to get food, which if you've ever been to a conference, that's tremendous because a lot of times that that's the choke point for most of this is that, you know, just they don't think well about the times when people need to all feed themselves. That managed to be handled very well as well. So I've, I, you know, my first experience, I was looking for things like, are the deaf included? And the deaf absolutely were. Yeah, and they those do. Kinds of things, yeah. the, the, the American Sign Language uh, volunteers and stuff are so, so good. They're present everywhere. Yeah. And so I found that kind of welcome and hospitality to be really amazing. The other thing about it, though, was that I'm, I'm used to Anglo crowds. And the other thing about this was I was very aware that there's a cultural difference in terms of crowding when people are coming out of Latinx cultures and the way that they think about the way that they think about congregation and the way they think about flow. It reminded me of the times when I was journeying in central Mexico and it reminded me a lot of the of the area around the the cathedral in Monterrey, you know, where I watched a similar kind of dynamic of the crowds and I had a similar a similar feeling of, wow, I don't have the the reflexes, the cultural reflexes to understand where I should be, you know, which way I should be turning right now. And I re-encountered that, not, an, I, not as an alien thing, but as kind of an, uh, just a reminder again that this church is much bigger than my comfort zone. And I, again, I, I can't yeah. stress how much I liked that, being yeah. exposed to that. And I just want to say, as we're closing up, because I've alluded to it a couple times, how how it has changed the way that I've thought about Catholicism here in Chicago. So I am part of several Catholic organizations that organize kind of large events. And I was at one of these large events last week where there were about 350 people in a big ballroom at one of the clubs down in the Loop, which is our kind of central downtown area. And I walked in there, and my wife was with me. And I turned to her at one point, and I, I said... I don't think that I can do this anymore. I don't think that I can spend time in Catholic spaces where there's three or 400 people gathered and all the faces that I see are white. Yeah. And to me, now that I am, I'm very aware of how, of how, how diverse Catholicism really is, I'm aware that Catholicism is that diverse here in Chicago, and I'm not seeing it reflected in the congregational spaces. And I'm not talking about worship. I'm talking about when Catholics intentionally choose to gather and I think that what I've really been convicted about is I want to start leveraging my privilege to question those spaces and to start speaking up, you know, when I'm on the board of an organization to ask, you know, about diversity and about representation and about the way that we are extending welcome and how we're choosing to promote and where we're choosing to promote these events so that, you know, we're kind of self-selecting a certain type of crowd. 
I think in the next couple of years, I really want to be very vocal about that. Well, and, and just a flashback to our last season, um, our listeners can go back and take a take a look at this. Our, our guest, uh, Kimberly Limor, um, spent, spent a lot of time in our conversation talking about you know, the diversity here in Chicago. I mean, you mentioned earlier, there's there's the kind of, I think, the popular go-to. There's the Irish and the Polish and the Italian kind of differentiated ethnic Catholicisms in Chicago. But there, especially here in the South Side, we're very aware of the fact that there's a longstanding and, and, and robust presence of African-American uh, Catholics. And so the fact that we're here in Chicago, you don't have to go to L.A. to see the diversity of, of the Roman Catholic Church. It's right here in our backyard. So... To wrap up, I've got two things, David. Let's get this on the air. One is I got to tell the story about how we thought we had said goodbye in L.A. and alas did not. And two, I've got three quick random fire questions for you about L.A. Congress that we'll close with. Do you consent? I do consent. The only other thing that I want to say before we get to that is just to thank our Patreon supporters because part of how – I was able to go out there was the fact that we have the financial support of our listeners that allowed for a little bit of extra in the budget to make that trip. On that note, too, um, yeah, I want to echo David's thanks. We're very grateful. We've got programming and other things that are, that are coming your way. Thank you for your patience on that. Um, and also, if you have enjoyed these last two episodes, let us know. Send us a note, social media stuff, etc. Okay, hit me with it. Okay, well, first, the closing story. So David and I, we went to this 8 o'clock mass. It was, it was very moving. We said our goodbyes. David had some meetings and was planning to stay. This is, uh, you know, Sunday uh, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, was planning to stay for a day or two later. Right? So we were in the Anaheim area, which is about 20 miles west of L.A. proper. And then I was going to be staying near LAX, the airport. And I had a couple of meetings that I was going to have Sunday afternoon. And then I was going to fly out Monday morning. So I was going to fly out uh, Sunday afternoon to get back because I, t- I teach on Monday afternoons here in Chicago. So I needed to get back. It was going to be a late flight, but, you know, you do what you need to do. Well... I get back to my hotel room at after mass and after um, some some events. I gave a workshop, and after that, to discover that my flight had been delayed, that the plane was originating in Hawaii, a good six-hour flight west of California, um, and that there were mechanical issues, and that the earliest it was going to get there was going to be at least a six-hour delay. And it seemed very, very clear to somebody like me who travels – dozens and dozens and dozens more than 100 times a year i know how this this game works and uh the likelihood it certainly wasn't going to the plane wasn't going to get there any earlier than that and the likelihood that it'd be delayed later spoiler alert as it was was very likely to happen so i got on the phone with the airline and and we talked through some options in the end the the best option was to leave on the first flight out the next morning so you know uh, inadvertently, I ended up being stuck in, in Los Angeles for one more, one more day. And so because I was in this kind of last minute crunch and I had to get out of Anaheim and, and was heading to LAX for this, this early flight the next morning, I got on my app and I was, you know, on my phone and just trying to find what is the cheapest hotel room I could find? What is the best deal? Um, and I found this one at a very, very good price. And so I, I get in uh, the rideshare car and, and I'm heading there. And uh, I get dropped off, and, and I think the guy was a very lovely conversation. I walk into this hotel, and who do I see checking in at the counter? David Dalton. It's a little Holy Spirit <laughs> moment where I turn around, and I'm like, 
Whoa. <laughs> I tapped him on the shoulder and, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to give him a heart attack. And so uh, we ended up, you know, being at the same place. Um, the, the downside to that is if I had known all of this, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes earlier than I did, then maybe we could have arranged to share a ride. But um, but it was such a great surprise. Uh, and, and of all, I mean, this is the Los Angeles International Airport. There are probably... 50 hotels in a one mile radius and the chances that we'd be at the exact same one was so funny not just the exact same one but that we would be in the window of like five minutes when i'm checking in and you arrive yeah and so i i took that as a very good sign it was it yeah. was great to see just you just a good confirmation that i was in the right place but you had some questions here are the questions don't think about them too much just give us the answer what was your favorite event or moment of la congress 2019 uh my favorite event of LA Congress 2019 was when when they dismissed the catechumens and I had a chance to see the hospitality towards those that are coming to the faith. It reminded me of when I was a catechumen and I really liked that. Who did you meet or see that most surprised you or most was a fanboy experience for you in the Catholic world? Oh goodness. So when we were recording on that first day at Lit Press, I didn't realize it, but uh, there were there were fans kind of orbiting around the lit press booth, and so getting a chance to meet Bridget Durham and Mary Switalski and several others, uh, those the, that was a standout for me. And just through the weekend, the chance the the chance meetings that I had with people were astonishing. And then finally, what was your favorite booth in the exhibit hall? My favorite booth in the exhibit hall actually wasn't in the exhibit hall. It was oh, okay. the, it, it was the little cappuccino stand. Across the uh, across the threshold, just outside the exhibit hall, and I went there several times. It was staffed by ex-evangelicals, so people who had been through intense evangelical upbringing who now were post-evangelical, and the conversations that I had with them about their experience of our huge Catholic conference was fascinating. Oh to my me. gosh, I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah. I know I know you've got to go, but can you give us some highlights, quick? Just I mean we so I. When when you're when you're when you love your tradition enough to be jaded en- enough about it to crack jokes about it, and you realize that another person who comes from a completely different tradition has been in love enough with their tradition to crack jokes about their tradition, and the jokes the jokes overlap enough that it's hilarious. That just we we had random conversations once they figured out who I was, and once I figured out who they were. When I would I would go back there a couple times a day for cups of coffee, and I would. I would I would ask them about their experience and they would ask me about mine and we would always end up having a good a good exchange on an interfaith level or I guess an intrafaith level um, about our various backgrounds and experiences. Did they think we were all nuts? Or did they enjoy the experience of Be- all these Catholics? Because they were post-evangelical, they understood that we were nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and they understood why we were nuts and why we were there. And they and and but they were very they were very hospitable about it. Yeah. I found it to be very refreshing. Awesome. Well, I hope that we have the opportunity to be back in 2020, and uh, we hope to see many of you listeners there as well if that comes to fruition. Thanks again for listening to this. I know that we kind of veered from our normal format, but by now you should be used to that. (laughs) (laughs) And we're very, very thankful that you went on this journey with us to the L.A. Rec, and we're looking forward to uh, talking to you again soon. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. 
We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should check them out at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first season. Please go back and listen to those. Thanks for listening. acting in high school. <laughs> <laughs>